0: listening to the perform prevent recover podcast where we aim to bring you the latest evidence and research to enable you to perform at your best prevent injury and recover well the perform prevent recover podcast is brought to you by southern suburbs physiotherapy center thanks for tuning in to episode 15 if it sounds like an unfamiliar voice because you're used to the dulcet tones of anthony you are correct For those that don't know me, my name is Rob O'Donnell, the other co-founder of SSPC and physio largely focused on the treatment and management of running injuries. Anthony thought that I should start pulling my weight and interviewing a few people who could help our running patients in their efforts to prevent running injuries and perform better. So I'm your host for today. Hopefully today's podcast will be a great start for my hosting resume. As you are very privileged to have a professional long course triathlete with us, Luke Bell. This episode is also a perfect follow-up to the podcast for all the runners out there after Anthony recently interviewed one of my former training partners in Dave Eady. If you haven't already listened to that and you have an interest in running anything from 5k through to marathon, I suggest you go back and search out episode 14. But before getting into today's episode, if you're enjoying our podcasts, please don't forget to hit the follow button on our home site, and that will make sure you won't miss a single episode. And it would be great if you have any comments or feedback to leave on our site. But for now, let's get straight into episode 15. As mentioned in the intro, we feel privileged to have today's guest on board. Luke Bell is Australian triathlon royalty, having not only been a successful triathlete on the professional circuit for nigh on 20 years, but he is also now a triathlon coach and works with TriVic to further develop young athletes in the sport. That makes him the perfect person to cover our three core topics, how to perform at your best, prevent injuries, and recover from both performance and injuries. And let me tell you, Luke has had to recover from some pretty horrendous injuries over the course of his career. Luke has had some great stories to tell from his 15 plus years at the top end of long course tri competitions. The list of achievements for Luke that I have here covers three pages, so really is too long for me to go right through, but includes an amazing 13 times at the start line at Kona, the World Ironman Championship, with two top 10 placings, and he has backed that up with another two top 10 placings at the World Half Ironman Champs, commonly known as 70.3. On top of that, he has had in excess of 20 wins and 50-plus podium finishes around the world in long course races over a 20-year period. We'll get right into many of Luke's incredible career achievements, so without further ado, welcome Luke Bell.
1: Hey, Luke. Thanks for joining us. How are you going with COVID? It is actually interesting times, isn't it? Um, I think it's a a time where it's actually interesting watching different people. Um, You know, we're all sort of fitness fanatics, um, whether it be, you know, for myself, swim, biking, running, um, running, you know, it's just people's lives are being turned around. And it's been really interesting, I feel, watching how people have, you know, have dealt with it, whether routines have been disrupted, to, you know, others that have just been able to roll with the punches as such and evolve and adapt and, you know, use the, the exercise for what it is. And well, for me, it's keeping sanity, um, keeping happy and keeping moving, um, as opposed to hitting sessions, numbers and and power.
0: Yeah, no doubt about it. And it may be that we'll, we'll notice that once we get back to racing, um, that those that have Handled it better and rolled with the punches, uh, will, will perform better. We used to always say that uh, whenever I've traveled overseas with teams and things, those that, that can, you know, things you've just got to accept that things don't go smoothly when you're traveling overseas, uh, and those that can just roll with it always tend to be uh, the better performers.
1: Yeah, I think so. You know, yeah, it's you learn, I guess, to be in tune a bit more with your body. Um, and I think people during this time. Um, just don't get the grasp of how much, I guess, mental fatigue it takes into, you know, whether it be you're used to doing, you know, a, a Tuesday track session, Thursday tempo, or, you know, the, the normal routine that I guess the, the bulk of people would have. Um, but just to be able to do that by yourself without a group, it takes mm. a, a lot of mental strain to, to get yourself up and, and get yourself to do it with, you know, not really having a goal in mind. Um, and, you know, as a lot of us know, the physical fatigue or mental fatigue, it's still very fatiguing on the body. Um, and, and people underestimate the actual strain of that mental fatigue on the body, um, trying to, to push yourself, as I said, without or with an unknown goal of, you know, in the future.
0: Yeah, exactly. What what do you think the future holds? So with no races going at the moment, where, where do you see the sport going?
1: Um yeah, it's like a super interesting question, I guess, and it's one you sort of think about daily or talk about with friends daily, um, for myself, you know, working with Triathlon Victoria, you're trying to predict what things are going to happen. I think the one thing that, you know, everyone's certain about is, is things will come back, like it's it's yep. not a definitive end. So it's, it's more accepting, okay, things are going to come back and then bringing it back to sort of the here and the now of, okay, what can I do now to one, you know, at the end of the day, you want to go to bed happy and you, you know, oh, I think as one of the German guys in our sport, you know, I picked up on a while ago, he, he says, you know, his goal at the moment is to go to bed better than when he woke up in the morning and whether that be physically, mentally, you know, just happier. Um, I was like, you know what, that's, that's a pretty good goal to have on day to day go yeah. to bed happier and better than what you were when you woke up in the morning. And then, as I said, there's no point trying to set these plans in stone because, you know, we don't know what's going to happen, when it's going to open up. And even if things do open up, it's going to be a pretty slow open up, especially after, you know, the first round. So whether it be, you know, hopefully some smaller events pop up and then you might be able to use them as a bit of excitement. But it's, I think that the racing terms, that's a long-term, you know, prospect but I've come back to just looking forward to whether it be catching the guys at the bottom of Anderson street and running a couple of laps of the tan with the, the, old, the old crew. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Like something as simple as that is what I've come back to to really look forward to.
0: Yeah. It must be tough for the pros at the moment, just as far as normal training. Well, there's no such thing as normal training, but you know, access to pools, riding bikes around in circles pretty much.
1: Yeah. I think, and again, it's, it's one of those things, it's a topic of discussion. And I think all sports, people are trying to work out who, who's going to come out of the, the back end of this because it, it is a long, like, realistically, it's going to be another six to 12 months um, for international travel. Qantas, what are talking, not till July next year, just yeah. pre-Olympics. So people aiming to go to the Olympics. Uh, their pre-race schedules are, are up in the air. Um, but then you, you think, you know, the top-end athletes are probably going to have sponsors and contracts set in place that that, that are going to look after and during this time um, across sports. Mm-hmm. And they're not, the, the newer guys, I think, will come out of it okay as well um, because most of those guys are, are fighting to, well, not necessarily fighting, they're hoping to progress their ability in the sport, given sport, to be able to make that next step. So most of them have already got, whether it be part-time jobs or a second source of income, they haven't gone all in. It's depending
0: on their current contract.
1: Yeah, it's those middle guys that may have just a a basic contract that's not enough to live off, Mm -hmm. um, but don't have a part-time job. They've gone all in six to 12 months to 24 months ago, one to two years ago. And they're the ones that you look at companies Last in, last employed, first out the door, sort of thing. Yeah, that, that's possibly their scenario where it's small contract, last in the door, first out the door, um, with no no secondary income. Feel for those guys that are you know in the middle of the middle of the ranks, trying to do everything they can to try and make it. Um, I think that'll be the ones that might might be hurt the most.
0: Yeah, virtually got to start again. Yeah um, So I look forward to delving into your knowledge of the, the sport and see what pearls you'll be able to uh, <laughs> offer our listeners about uh, where well, our whole focus is the, the perform, prevent, recover. So uh, we'll, we'll ask you a bit later on uh, some, some of the ideas you have to, to maximize people's ability. But let's start a bit about your own journey. Uh, so were you born and bred down Portland Way?
1: Yeah, down in Portland, born in Warnerville. Um, Dad worked at Nestlé, and uh, mum was a school teacher and then progressed to Portland. You know, in, in primary school, um, so he grew up around those western districts, and uh, it was actually interesting. It's always with those small towns you think of athletes that are that have come out of there. And we had Michelle Ferris, obviously the Australian cyclist, come out yep. of Warnerville. Um, Joanne King was was a runner, and then progressed to triathlon and won multi, one or two world titles. So for a town of six thousand people, there, there was, yeah some some not bad athletes come out of it. I think um the other one was Adam Robinson, who's now you know he won I think he won Bell's Beach Surf Classic at one stage, but he's okay. now head of, he's now head of Surfing Victoria. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, for a small coastal town, it's it's not too bad. And then yeah, obviously can... a few few AFL footy players in and amongst it as well.
0: And one of the world's best golfers, yes. Mark, Mark Leishman, out, out of so. Yes. Uh, yeah, they've they've done all right for themselves. So, did you? How did you get into triathlon? Was it down there in in your junior days? Or
1: yeah, growing up, I think I, I was just involved in all sports. Um, I actually did little athletics from under six through to under sixteen. So every single year, um, I think you know the back then it was I was one of the few kids actually in the state I think that went all the way through. Um, I, Got Little Athlete of the Year one year and still got a funny photo. We made the trek to Melbourne at uh, Doncaster Shopping Centre. And at that stage, it was the end of the the Sydney to Melbourne Ultra. Um, So I actually got presented with the Victorian Little Athlete of the Year by Janis Kuros and Clifford Young.
0: Okay.
1: So Yeah, (laughs) got those two still in a photo here, um, which is pretty cool. And then grew up, yeah, football, basketball, probably basketball was my main sport. Mm-hmm. Um, that, I, that I loved, um, just had a couple of, I guess, knee issues. I'll dislocate my knees a lot, really. Just yep. the, the plain, simple part of it. And then I've got re- extremely hypermobile joints to, to the degree where we actually come down to Olympic Park when I was about 16. Um, I actually thought I'd done my ACL um, in my knee. And then they did the, the old knee wobble check um, on both knees. And like, oh, they're both the same, actually. Um, and then obviously further x-rays and scans revealed that, yeah, my, my knee's are hypermobile and I've got no patella groove. Um, I think it's actually thanks to my father. So my, my kneecap sits, sits high on my knee and if I go sideways motions, it tends to
0: just pop I can out. Still,
1: yeah, and I can still remember the, the doctor at the time sliding my knee or dislocating my knee in that surgery, just not trying to, obviously. It was just checking that, the motion and it just slipped around the side of my, my knee and I quickly... Sp- the simplest thing to do is straighten my straight. leg and it pops back in. Mm-hmm. Um, so I learned to do that over the years, but got to the point where it was like, all right, you're either going to do a lot of lot of damage over time or try and find something where you stay in a straight line. Um, and that's pretty much where I fell into a triathlon. Mum mum, and dad suggested I give it a go in Portland for a little bit of rehab. Um, I was still playing footy and basketball at the time, and then yeah, things just really evolved from there. I was never fantastic at it. Um, I did all sports sort of thing, as I said, but it probably wasn't till university days where I started to, I guess, show a bit more interest. Um, and then obviously like a lot of people in the sport, we watched Nine's Wide World of Sport, and um, I never had, or never went through the the short course Olympic distance. Grow up in the sports or scenario. I, I watched Nine's Wide World of Sport. Watched Hawaii on there. Uh, Mark and Dave, and then obviously Greg Welch winning it, and that was sort of it. Mum still recalls that I sat there and said one day that one day I, w- I want to do an Ironman, and that it was a tick the boxing purely.
0: Yeah, so it wasn't that natural progression that many people have no. from start the the shorter stuff and build through the sport. You were just straight to long course stuff.
1: Yeah, pretty much. Like as I said, through university, I raced locally in Melbourne. I was, you know, never fantastic. I made a, a junior, um, a couple, a junior Victorian team uh, a couple of times. Um, Craig Mottram was actually in that, funnily enough, one of those. Yeah, he um, started at tries as a yeah. student, as a student. Yep. And then yeah, it was through university. I did uh, applied science and phys ed out at RMIT, and um, which has got teaching tacked on the back of it. So. Once I finished uni, I thought this is the only time where I'm gonna have available to be able to train to complete an Ironman. So I signed up for Ironman Australia that that year as a 22 year old, straight out of uni thinking, I'll tick this box and then I'll be back in the classroom or back doing something in the the workforce um, after that. And yeah, luckily enough, I come sixth, went 8.40 and things sort of got my Hawaii spot and things ball rolled from there very quickly.
0: So, how quickly from that? So you basically just started. So I imagine that first one you you did as an age grouper, not not professional.
1: Um, no, I did one during my last year of university. I had to complete one half distance event as an age grouper. Yep. Um, to no, no. Actually, take a step back. I got my professional license completing as an age grouper in the the Olympic Distance World Championships in Perth in the 20 to 24 category. Um, I finished second overall there. Um, and then got a pro license off that. So I'd race two professional races in you know, a half distance. Yep. And then actually did my first Ironman as a professional. As a professional, and, right. Yeah, so I never actually raced um, as an age grouper in the, the long course scene.
0: No, no. And so it was your second
1: Ironman Hawaii? Correct. Yeah. Yeah, Second Ironman was Hawaii. Yes. As a 23 year old, 22 year old, 22, 23 year old. Um, and again, it was raised Ironman Australia qualified and it was like, well, you never know, you never take things for granted. Um, and again, I thought, you know, this is going to be a one-off thing. So I'll go there and tick the box, tick the dream as such as competing in the event that I watched on television as a young kid. And then, um, Will just slot back into normal life, but yeah, as I said, things progressed pretty pretty quickly, and ball rolled from there. Here we are, twenty years later, thinking about progressing into normal life.
0: <laughs> yeah, gold, fantastic. Um, and so you did little ats through to under sixteen. So, which of of the disciplines was was running with that little ats? What what was your event? Were you a, a distance, the distance end? Not that they go a long way in little ats, but
1: yeah, I was. I was in that probably I, I enjoyed running the eight hundred. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd, I'd generally make the final at down at Olympic Park as a as a kid each year. Um, Progress through the regionals from Portland. Obviously, it's about a four or five step process to get there. Um, I think the best I ever come was a fourth or fifth over the eight hundred. Um, I enjoyed the fifteen hundred, but probably more the eight eight more. Um, and funnily enough, a sixty metre hurdler. I made a few finals in the sixty metre hurdles.
0: Okay, that's um, the, the hypermobile joint. Get the, <laughs> get the hip in good range.
1: Um, and then I think one year we actually. We come down to the States and I had a go at the multi event, um, which again, it was just purely for, for enjoyment and just being, I guess, good at multiple sports. Um, you slotted in there and again, yeah, I finished okay. Um, I wasn't anywhere near you know, one, two or three, but you know, it was something different and fun.
0: And so where do you see the sport now? Like we're seeing some incredibly good or fast uh, cyclists out there, cycling times is Is one at the long course end, so you, your your sport in particular do you see one discipline being more important than another?
1: Um, I guess everyone in our sport always looks at that looks at the run more so i personally I feel it's it's because it's the discipline you end with um, yep. as opposed to any other reason at all It's just that that's the one where you see the biggest changes, but those changes occur due to your pacing. the swim and the bike generally it's not necessarily you know someone's a better runner than anyone else it it just comes back to nutrition pacing um, and the training gone into it previously but you know the bike or in triathlon the bike plays a massive role um you don't necessarily have to be the 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 fastest guy there but you know obviously you think of your body as a petrol tank and it's it's here you can get off with the the fullest tank to be able to run we're talking say an ironman event to be able to run a marathon. You could pick anyone at the moment. You could be a 210, 220 marathon runner, but if you're getting off and your petrol tank's flashing red, doesn't matter. it doesn't matter how quick you can go, you're still gonna get beaten by the guy that runs a three-hour marathon because he's gotten off with a 90% full tank and he's just gonna chug away all day. Um, so it comes down to pacing and strength. Obviously, the, the bike's a huge portion. So you need to be strong enough to be able to get off the bike and then maintain good running technique and form to be efficient, to be able to cross the line, again, saving energy.
0: So basically the the swim and the bike, you can certainly lose the event, but you, yes. you probably can't win it there. It it, it comes down to the, the running event at, at the end.
1: Yeah, 100%. And, you know, we always said you, you can never win a race in, in the swim. Is probably the saying that's been around in our sport for a long time. You can never win a race in the swim, but you can definitely lose it. Cause if you don't get out of the, the race with the contenders um, and for Hawaii, for me, it was, if you don't get out of the water in front of the Germans, you may as well ride back to your hotel, pack your bike and look for the next race because the amount of energy you've got to spend to get back into the race, you're, you're actually not racing the race until you're with those main contenders um, on the bike. Um, they call it the Harvey express there. Um, so you've got to burn some matches to catch that group before you actually, even in the race itself, so yeah.
0: So the the Germans uh, are the leaders of the sport. Is that because they're the the best cyclists? So you want to be with them in the bike, and then then you you get down
1: to your running race. Um, it's it's a it's sort of seesawed over the years, actually. You know, Australia went through a, through a phase probably um, 2000, 2006, thousand six, two thousand eight. Um, we had the. The early, early 2000s when I got into it, Peter Reid, a Canadian, um, dominated the sport. Um, and he was consistently getting off the bike and running, you know, 245 marathon in Hawaii conditions um, for the marathon. And then Tim DeBoom, an American, took over. Mm-hmm. The Germans were pre 2000s. Um, then the Aussies took over with Chris McCormack, Craig Alexander, Pete Jacobs. So we had a good dominating era. You think Craig Alexander won three? Three. Uh, yeah. I think Chris won it you know a couple himself, so there's five Pete but six so we had a you know a six or a seven year span where the the Aussies and then you would have myself in the top ten um Luke McKenzie we would have four or five guys within that top ten uh, I think at about two thousand and twelve the Germans took back over um it's they're methodical in their training um they're very driven um, and they have a lot of pride where you know I think there's a lot of guys now that have, and probably you can look across all sports where people get caught up in social media nowadays um, and forget about the fundamentals. And the fundamentals is, is you got to do the training and you got to do the groundwork. Um, And that's all we did in the early days. It's, you had nothing else to worry about. And I I understand that sponsor commitments now have changed. Um, You've got to promote yourself more, it's a bit more PR, but people seem to be, you know, you see guys out riding and they're doing a story or, you know, they're out running and, and, and chatting on their phones, doing these Insta stories. And it's like, well, if you're out running and doing an, a session, how are you doing a session while you're talking on your phone and or carrying a phone at one?
0: Yeah, you're neglecting be, the basics sort of thing. Yeah,
1: the, yeah. the fundamentals, whereas, you know, generally if we're out doing a hard session, you, you, you've you got, you know, saliva from your mouth that you're too tired to be able to wipe away. You're gasping to try and get the air in and you, you're trying to get the best out of yourself um i just personally i struggle to see how you can do that while you're running with a phone in your hand
0: so you're seeing all these guys that are on on social media and you're thinking well i've probably got him covered because he's he's not doing the basics
1: yeah 100 percent. where the germans you, you you hear them talk about what they do in training and people are like wow they train hard and you're like well yes they do but that's what the best in the world of any given sport do they they train bloody hard because yep. you have to train hard to be the best in the world. Yep. Um, it's
0: no accident that they get there.
1: No, and they they do. They tick the boxes. They tick the fundamentals, and everything else. Generally, you do the training, you get the results, and everything else follows. Um, you don't do the following stuff first and then hope you're going to get a result.
0: Yeah, yeah. So that's a good segue. Let's let's get into training. Uh, what what's the for our listeners? What do you think is the best um split between the events as far as training goes how do you how do you do it
1: it's well it's a hard one i guess to answer because there's there's sort of two answers to it um you've obviously got the professional side of things um mm-hmm. which you know you, you're putting as much time into all three disciplines as possible because you've got to be at the pointy end of, of all three sports the the bike obviously is is the biggest chunk of time Um, and the swim, I guess, you know, if you, for me, for instance, the average time you spend on a bike would be about 20 hours a week, 15 to 20 hours per week. Um, running, you're probably looking at, you know, anywhere from probably averaging around six hours per week and then swimming. Swimming is probably pretty close to to running as well. Um, you'd be that six to seven hours a week, Yep. but obviously that's non weight bearing. um, So it's a lot easier on the body as well. Um, the, the bang for your buck is, you can actually put a lot of strain on your cardio system swimming um, and not have that muscle damage. Um, again, similar to the bike, bike you can get a lot of miles in um, and, and you can, whether it be on a train or ride some Hills hard, you, you can work your heart and lungs really hard again, without the strain on the body. Yeah. run, you know, as we all know, if you go and run 20 or 30 minutes flat out, there, there's a fair bit of loading and strain and, and body force that you've got to, rec- you have to respect and recover from properly. And again, you know, you're talking long runs as well. Um, people talk about time on the feet, but that time on the feet still needs to be respected to be recovered properly, um, to carry over. So run mileage for myself, I guess, if you compare it to say elite marathon runners, we, we would trying and hit 80 to hundred K a week. Um, yep. and that, that was about the number, where you could still have some intensity in there, still cross over and do the swim and the bike properly without losing anything there, whether it be form or intensity as well, as opposed to say an, a, a marathon runner where you know 200, 200 k's a week are sort of a given thing. But I guess what people don't understand with our sport as well as a marathon runner has to run that much to build up your, your aerobic system as well, um, mm-hmm. where I can go and sit on a bike for, four to six hours and i'm still working my i can make sure my heart rates you know 130 to 140 It's still in the aerobic zone but i can finish that i can fuel properly because i can carry everything with me so that side of the things tick sort of ticked um, so that aids recovery as well and i haven't had the strain on my joints because obviously it's it's mostly it's pretty much non-weight-bearing as well so i can average 100, 130 140 beats a minute increase my heart and lung capacity without the strain on the body. So yeah, my run volume can drop a lot. So it comes back to when I do running, you just, it's all right, I need to be specific here. So- it's about it, quality. Yeah, it's quality, not quantity. Um, yeah. And people get that confused and, and that over the sport saying, well, can't always do quality and quantity. And like, I understand what they're saying, but it's in terms of running for us, yes, we can, because the quantity part is in the swim and, swim and the bike. That's where yeah. we tick the quantity. You
0: can do all the heart, lung stuff in, yep. in a non-weight-bearing status, and and really the running is is all about uh, getting the body used to impact and, and absorbing those loads uh, that come with it.
1: Yeah, and I used to, when I first got into the sport, I was my swim squad had um, Dr. Andre Laguerre, who's you know yep. one of the head. Cardiologist at Baker Institute. So I've known Andre for, for years. Um he's poked and prodded me and cut me open many a times. Um used Hopefully to do it he hasn't
0: cut you open too much.
1: Oh, the, old, the old muscle biopsy back in the day. Studies, was, yeah. yeah. But you know, they used to feed the, the university budget. Um but you know he he reminded me one day that, you know, if yours swimming enough or continually enough for triathlon you're actually getting enough cardio or cardiovascular stimulant there to be able to sustain you for the rest of the sport your heart rates up in a swim session you know we could do a pick a number a three three kilometer swim set is, is probably a general main set which will take you know 45 minutes to an hour where your heart rate will be north of 150 beats a minute um but you can back up and do it day in day out because of you're in water and on weight bearing, but you can't go and smash yourself running for 45 minutes a day, day in, day out. It's, it's something's going to break and something's got to give.
0: Yeah, you just won't absorb it. And it's all about, we're always talking about load management and, and that's pretty much what you're saying. I often say to people, recovery is as important as any session that you'll do. So, you know, that's, that's what you're basically saying there.
1: Yeah. And you, you talk to, I guess, runners and mo- most of the you know, top end runners understand everything. It's, it's, again, you come back to that middle bulk area where there's, you always talk about a little bit of knowledge is dangerous. Um, but they go, the, the simple reply you always get is, but I'm a runner. I need to run. And mm-hmm. I think in recent times, the best thing that I actually have seen was, was after Jen Lucas did that, the hot lap of the tan and yep. she got the tan record. And on her social media, she put up a short video. Um, I don't know whether Nike did or or who actually did it, but she put up her average sort of went through her average week of training. And within that week, she had some water running, I think one or two times. And obviously everyone knows Jen's a little bit prone to to In I guess the past short period. Um, but she also had cycling in there as well, um, Mm. on a, on a bike as well. So you're sitting there thinking, okay, here's one of our best runners. Um, incorporating different means to obviously still increase heart rate, but take that load and strain off the body. So that consistency over time is key. Um, mm. my, my swim coach told me early days, and it's one I, I've, I've nearly adopted and stolen from him now, I think, uh, but Buddy Portia um, goes, he just said three rules, be consistent or don't get sick, don't get injured, be consistent. If you get sick, you can't be consistent. If you get injured, you can't be consistent. It all comes back to consistency. So for my entire career, they were, you know, I'd always come back to, right, don't get sick, don't get injured, be consistent. Tick, 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 and then generally you'll end up racing well over time
0: brilliant yeah i think if everyone uh, takes that away and and nothing else from uh, this podcast they'll they'll do well there's no doubt at all if if you can just be consistently ticking along and avoid injury you lose this boom or bust thing where guys will be flying but then they'll miss 6 weeks with an injury, uh, they're, they're never the ones uh, that, that end up making it. You see, you know, be it in, in my sport, Monoghetti, Di Casella, like they went years where they they didn't have injuries. They they just managed their body very, very well.
1: Yeah. And, you know, you come back to say weekly weekly training and, I guess you know people are still trying to do these super weeks and using the under the super week does nothing other than increase chances of injury um and make you tired because pick pick some numbers um throw it out there so if you're used to running 60 kilometers a week and then all of a sudden you go i'm going to do a week of 80 to 100 kilometers and then you know have a recovery week after that and you're like well you're going to bump up bump it up by that your body's used to running and can cope with running 60 kilometers a week over time progress to be able to handle it. And then if you go 80 to hundred, all of a sudden the fatigue on the body joints, muscles, the chances of injury go through the roof, Yep. but then it makes you overly tired as well. So then the next week you're useless anyway um, because you can't actually do anything. And if you follow a graph, it's like you're better off going 60, 60, 60 over say, if you're used to doing two weeks on one week off, then go three weeks on at 60 and one week off because you're, the incremental change your body can cope with but by bumping things up 30 odd percent um the, the there's no reason the body is going to go what the hell have you done to me um, yeah it's
0: just risk reward stuff isn't it yeah
1: yeah 100 um, percent. it's so uh, it's this
0: acute load versus chronic load i always say to people you know your, your chronic load measure over a month so you're you know if you're Say so you're doing your 60, 60, 60, and then your acute load is what you do over a week. And if that suddenly goes up 30%, it's, it's just common sense that your, your risk has just increased enormously.
1: Yeah. And I think the other thing, it's people will see that 60, 60, 60 and go, I haven't improved. And you're like, well, you're trying to explain to them, well, yes, you have, because you've done three weeks of 60. So your body's learned to cope with that so that's a longer time frame because we're talking an extra all of a sudden it's seven we're talking going from two weeks of 60 to three weeks of 60 that's another 33 percent of 60 because it's mm-hmm. seven days in a week by by an extra one three yeah it's like that's a big that's a massive improvement being able to just handle another week of what you've been doing previous weeks consistency yeah yeah
0: yeah um and and where does racing fit into that is it a bit like marathoning in that you're generally, especially at the elite level, you're generally looking at about two a year. Yeah. What's <laughs> recovery to... after an nine? Yeah. Ring?
1: Well, this is what I used to use that. Like, I, honestly, I, I would say for the average person, um, full recovery, you're looking at two months. Yeah. Um, like, that's proper recovery. Um, I think that the hard part, and it's like in any sport, is the general population will look to the elites and see what they do and think, oh, that's just what's the given, but they forget that this is our job, um, and the job in there is to recovery, get ten to twelve hours sleep every day. Um, but for ourselves, I would still say a good four to six weeks mm-hmm. um, to be properly recovered from an Ironman. Um, yeah, generally it'd be you'd have two, two a year, maybe three. Three's pushing it, um, but we also used to try and slot in. You'd slot in six to ha- six to eight half distance races again. In between that and again you know i used to run with Motram a bit and you always go why do you guys race so much and my argument was well it's my job
0: yeah money and,
1: and if yeah purely and simple we need to pay a mortgage like and if you don't race the sponsors go well he goes oh but you know the, the sponsors will look after him like yes to some degree but at the end of the day it's our job to race so unfortunately i've picked a, a sport that the races are really long yeah so is it ideal to back back up one after the other? No, but is it a part of my job? Well, yes. But yeah, generally if you if you talk, and the, and the Australians, Australians actually, it's not too bad being in Australia because we've got a winter in the middle. So generally you've got Man New Zealand, which is around March, um, Man Australia, which is around May. So you can use the summer to train for, and then being in the Southern Hemisphere, or being down here in Melbourne, especially, or Victoria, Our winter is miserable and you don't want to get out on the bike. So that winter period, and I associate this with Germany as well, or, you know, we say the Northern sub hemisphere as well, because that's forced time off. Yes, you go and run cross country. Yes, you keep swimming, but the volume of your training is dramatically reduced. You're sitting on a trainer in your room for maybe an hour rather than spending five or six hours on a weekend training. your training volume come back to that could be reduced by 30 to 50 percent purely by winter and then you do you build back up and then you do a late season race whether it be a Bustleton in december um or you know you look at something else late in the year but you've actually got a forced time off recovery period and then as i said you you go to the northern hemisphere sorry they've got winter it's snow they can't do anything so that you know they cross-country ski they do other things again still stimulating your, your cardiovascular system but in terms of same same monotonous same wear and tear on the body they've got to change there which is got nice the variation the yeah, yeah
0: absolutely yeah. the
1: hardest the hardest thing for the aussie professionals and i fell into a trap of it i think everyone does is we used to go summer to summer like i didn't see a winter mm. for 18 years um which is you know in itself pretty amazing but You'd, my main bulk of this, obviously Hawaii in October is, is my world championship. So you had to be on for Hawaii, but most of my sponsors were US sponsors. So my on season was from April through to October, but then you'd come home, have November off and December, you're back rolling around again. And then you're like, oh, I'll jump in on a local race here or someone will say, you know, give you an appearance fee to come to a race there. And then all of a sudden you've done another five or six races over the Australian summer. Albeit low key, but you actually haven't mentally and physically switched
0: downtime, off. Down time,
1: yeah. Yep, and then you, you you fall into this racing, 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 and it's just a accumulation of fatigue. So, would
0: you always have your off period back back in Oz? Obviously, when you're over, when you're racing, you're overseas largely, but your base would still be in Australia.
1: Yeah, hundred um, percent. As I said, from early days yeah, like 95% of my sponsors were all US based to the point where I think my, my Saucony contract, um, actually, if I won races outside of America, my bonuses were about, again, about 20 to 30% less, mm. um, because that's, I, I was head office sorcony. Um, so that Australia is not their market as such. Um, so it's, it was for my best interest to win races in America, in America or on, or on the North American circuit, um, North and South America sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so you tailored again, you tailored your season around it because it's, it's your business. Um, yeah. I don't want to, you're winning an Man is bloody hard, whether you win it in Australia, whether you win it in Asia, whether you win it anywhere, so I just want to maximise the amount of money you're gonna earn from it. We don't so learn the most. Yeah, yeah. yeah I don't wanna I don't wanna give give back twenty or thirty percent um, because I'm still not gonna be able to walk the day after the race. Yeah.
0: Tough enough to recover from without uh, recovering with, with less money in your back pocket.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> Let's take a short break and reflect back on our most recent podcast, which as I mentioned earlier, featured my former trading partner. David Speedy-Eady, who also dabbled in triathlons, but is now an ultra-distance runner and mentor and coach for people looking for personalised running programs. Let's have a quick listen back to some of what Dave had to say about how an average marathon runner may structure their training program.
2: I straight away get them on five days of exercise a week. Okay. And that might have to be three runs, two walks, just to start with, but if they're capable of out there for five runs and like I said, they might start on five 30 minute runs and we'll build on that. And in those 30 minute runs, there's still going to be some hard running, but the philosophy won't change. That's five runs. We're going to have two easy. We're going to have two a bit harder. One will be a tempo run and one will be a pure speed work run. And I'll go through this in a minute. And the other one will be a long run. So if we took it Monday to Sunday and we had, let's just say, Monday and Friday we have off. So we're running Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Saturday, Sunday. And we just keep it for that, for simplicity. And what we're doing is we're making Wednesday and Saturday your hard effort days. We're making Tuesday an easy run, Thursday an easy run, Sunday a long run. So the, the, the week looks like Tuesday easy, Wednesday hard, Thursday easy. Friday off, Saturday hard, Sunday long. And the long run, you know, it might only start at 60 minutes, but it will build to two to two 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 and a half hours. But you've got to have a starting point.
0: If you want to catch up on episode 14 with a running man, Dave Eadie, jump across to the Perform, Prevent, Recover page, and you'll be able to download that episode and everything else we've done. But for now, let's get back to the sport of triathlons with Luke Bell. So I want to talk a, a bit about your racing. I've got two particular races in mind. So you, you got on the start line at Kona 13 times. Uh, and I said in the intro, twice in the top 10, and it's the, the not your fifth place that you rate as your best day at Kona, it's your seventh place. Tell us a bit about that.
1: Yeah, it's funny. A lot of people actually forget about the seventh. Obviously everyone just, whether it be a quick Google search and that pop, the fifth always pops up um, and that top five is always nice. But the seventh, yeah, like as I said, the, the, the races you win generally come easy. And, you know, if you ask a lot of top athletes, they enjoy winning the races, but their proudest moments are generally not the races they win because due to other adversity. And this again was a, the same scenario. My fifth, albeit painful in the last 10 Ks of the marathon, um, the, the fifth, you know, I look back on it and I can't, I don't remember anything that went wrong. Where the seventh, I always come back to, the can, cannon goes off at 7 a.m. in the morning, and to relate it to most people, I'm sitting at, i average generally 150 to 160 heart rate over eight and a half hours. I'm not crossing the finish line till after 3 p.m. in the afternoon. So yeah. from 7 a.m. to 3, 3, 3 30 in the afternoon, mm-hmm. you know, you're breathing pretty heavy. So about two minutes into the swim, the cannon goes off. And I honestly just went, I feel like crap. Like, I just felt, it's that heavy lethargic feeling. And you just, you're like, and instantly, you know, um, you give it another couple of minutes, so I'm probably 400 meters into a 3.8 kilometer swim. And I'm like, nah, I haven't, I've not come good. Um, and then it's that realization that I'm I'm about to cop eight hours of, of pain Um, It's hard enough on the body as it is, but I already know four minutes in that the next eight plus hours is just going to be miserable. Uh, But it's the one day that matters. So it's about working out your strategies to put yourself in the best position to get the best result out of that day. And yeah, luckily enough, I has crossed the line in seventh place. Um, So that's, yeah, by head and shoulders above probably the most proudest race I've had over my career.
0: Yeah, just because you're able to grind it out and, and put adversity uh, aside.
1: Yeah, and it's, it's coming back to, I think it was, it's daunting to think I've got eight hours of pain ahead of you anyway, if you're feeling good. Um, you're related to a marathon, people stand on a marathon line, and it's like the thought of running 42 kilometers, it's a bloody long way. Yeah.
2: Well,
1: yeah. Ask, ask even the best in the world, 42 kilometers is, is a long way, but you break it down to realistic goals. So, you know, for me that day, it was, all right, I'm going to gonna I'm gonna make the first turnaround on the swim. I'll get to the halfway point, then reassess. Um, and then you do that, and you're like, oh, okay, I'm still intact. I'm, it's hurting, but I'm still intact. I'm in a good position. And then, you know, you'd focus on other things. How's my positioning? Um, do these checks within your, your mind all the time. And, and, and purely all it was doing was it was trying to take my mind off feeling crappy. So I'd be like, all right where am I positioned in the swim? And then, you know, you'll get through the swim, you get to three kilometers, like, okay, I've got 800 to go, I can, I can suck up 800 meters, and then I'm still in the race. And then again, on the bike, it come back to, I have a strategy. Um, I was coached by Paula Newby-Fraser for many years, um, and then went on to one of her training partners, or Rock Fry, who coached Peter Reed to three titles, and Paula obviously won eight, eight female titles in Hawaii. So there's a bit of knowledge there. A little bit. Yeah. Um, so I always come back to ask yourself how do you feel what do you need so every 10 minutes and you're talking this is repeated as soon as i get out of the water onto the Is how do i feel what do i need because obviously nutrition's involved as well mm. pacing is a major part um, but you're still in a race against other people it's not just about for, for me it wasn't about even pacing obviously the fastest way from a to b is to drip drip feed it out but there's times you've got no choice but to go uh, but every 10 minutes, I'd have a stopwatch, a beeper go off on the watch. And that was just a reminder every 10 minutes. How do I feel? What do I need? And it's like, okay, how do I feel? Oh, you know, I'm actually not too bad. And like, okay, keep things ticking along nicely. Um, for me, my goal was to, on the bike, to, to hit 90 to 90 plus or minus grams of carbohydrates per hour. And over there, I had to consume, like, it was like 1.2 to 1.5 liters per fluid per hour as well just through obviously the conditions in hawaii and just what uh yeah fluid losses and but you know if i got to 40 minutes and my buzzer went off or you know an hour 40 in and my buzzer went off and it's like how do you feel what do you need like oh i'm actually you know the ocean's blue there's a bit of clouds up on the volcano it's like all right i'm starting to daydream a bit so it's okay and then you you take your steps back it's like okay when did i last have some nutrition oh that was 20 minutes ago okay so the drip feed of nutrition over time is, is is a little bit ago so okay backtrack i need to pick that up because my concentration levels are disappearing and again you know further down the track might be how do i feel what do you need i feel crap you're like okay no nutrition has been good so that's a tick and it's like oh well it's not nutrition this time what is it this time why am i feeling crap how's my breathing rate you're like, oh, you know, I'm breathing heavy. I probably can't, if someone asked me a question, I, I wouldn't be able to answer the question without holding my breath. So, okay, maybe my pace is too hard. So, okay, I might need to dial it back 10 to 15 seconds per kilometre, which pe- people think that sounds amazing. Well, or not amazing, sounds a huge, huge speed loss. So like, oh, I can't run 10 to 15 seconds per kilometre slower. But if you go out and run a, four, a 400 metres, the average person and time, how far you run over 15 seconds, like at the pace you're running at for a marathon, what, you're probably going to cover 30 or 40 metres. So over a kilometre, you're going to lose 30 metres, yep. whatever. But being conscious enough to, or aware enough to be able to dial back that pace, put you back, okay, i dial it back 10 or 15 seconds for two or three kilometres. I've lost 90 metres over three kilometres. But you know what? I feel a ton better now. All right. And then you come back around. How do I feel? What do I need? Oh, I feel really good again. Okay. Tick, tick, tick. Pace is good. Nutrition is good. Let's go the next 10 minute block. And I would literally do that for eight hours. And again, it it takes, takes your mind off the pain itself. Um, it gives you something else to focus on, but those focus points are actually extremely relevant to your performance.
0: Yeah, and what a fascinating uh, look into the thought processes and it just shows people, especially on, on that day when you're really struggling, how much of a mental game it can be. Like everyone looks at it, it's it's an eight-hour-plus event. For most people listening to this, it, it can be a 12-hour event, um, but it's not just a physical performance. It's the the mental game is, is huge, especially yeah, think, at the elite level.
1: Yeah, and, you know, you take any scenario in life it's there's a great book i'm trying to think of what it was called it was a tour de france cyclist put me onto it greg henderson um and andre skripal used to read it as it's, it's i think it's called the chimp paradox um and and theoretically there's a good chimp and a bad chimp on your left and right shoulder and it's it's a extremely good book and it talks about good chimp bad chimp and bad chimp is the first one to jump in your ear at any stage so you think the negative thought process is it's human instinct that that's the first one we lean towards and it's about quietening down the bad chimp and listening to the good chimp Mm -hmm. so trying to keep things positives or moving in a positive manner um, because Generally, it's a negative thought. And, and what you think even running, you have a negative thought when you're out on your, your daily run. And what do you do? All of a sudden, you're like, oh, this has become really hard. You start hitting the ground heavier, your shoulders slump, your posture goes. You don't want to run anymore. You don't want to push anymore. Whereas if you, you can bring things back to, Positiveness—it's like okay, okay. I need to stand taller at the minute and lean into the wind. Yes, it's windy, um, but if I lean into it, it's going to help me. You, you try and think about positive things. Um, so it's learning to do that. And I think for myself, I picked up early days that I was probably—and um, you know—it's a—it's a trade, probably family, country. I was a glass half-empty person rather than glass half-full. So I was aware that negatives will jump on my back like a piano quicker than probably most. Um, I always dreamed to be one of those people that just oozed confidence and such. Not in an arrogant way, but you had enough positive thoughts within yourself where you're standing on the start line going, I honestly believe I'm going to do that. Where my early days, I'd stand on the start line, you're like, oh, they look fit. The veins on their calves are popping out. Does, does a vein on a calf mean anything? Anything, yeah. No, no. But. All of a sudden, you go. There's that bad chimp on my shoulder. Going, their veins look really good. That must mean they're fitting really fast. That they could be a sixteen-hour athlete for all I know. But all of a sudden, I've I've straight away gone negative.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's gold. Um, the other race I want to get to, and it might lead us into a bit about injuries. So you've you've largely been injury-free, or you've got two pages of injuries here, but they're they're all trauma-based injuries. And a a lot of it does go back. You mentioned uh, you were were prone to dislocating knees and that sort of thing. But one of, and it may have been, it stopped you having your best result at Hawaii, uh, was when you you got bowled over by a a camera motorbike when you were, uh, I think, competing for the lead at the time.
1: Yeah, that was at Ironman Western Australia, actually. And um, yeah, we, we'd just come up on nine kilometers on the bike. Um, I was with a French guy, Jeremy Jerkowitz. And yeah, there was a, another athlete and the, the lead motor with the cameraman on the back sort of tried to slot in between us. And at the time, we were probably 20 meters apart. Um, we had a tailwind section of the course. Um, it was very flat and we were doing about 60 kilometers, 55, 60 kilometers an hour. Um, So obviously, as you can imagine, if a motorbike slots in between you and a a cameraman points to get a photo, that that time or that gap disappears very quickly at Mm. 60 kilometres an hour. So I did the quick swerve. um, But yeah, as I've swerved, I've pulled, if you think of yourself sitting on a bike, I've used all my body weight to pull the bike with me with my knees. Um, and as I've done that, obviously, feet fixed in pedals, um, I've twisted my knee. Uh, my kneecap's slightly dislocated. And you think of like a small teaspoon. It sliced, sliced out a little bit, of, um, little bit of cartilage on the, on the upper part, on the, the lateral side of my knee, um, left knee, um, and within five pedal strokes, I, I could not pedal pedal the bike anymore. Uh, it's it's actually still... It actually got put on onto the coverage, um, so th- there is footage of me just literally... And to the general eye, it looks like I've just I was riding along first and second on the day and I've pulled over the edge of the road and I'm like, that's it, my day's done.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um and the and, cameraman just rides off into the distance.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um and Jeremy went on on to win the race. Um Jeremy never did much before that race, didn't do much after it, uh, but got an woulda, coulda, shoulda. Um, yeah, you know, I've never been one to, to sort of say I would have won that race because you, there's still a long way to go. But my chances of doing anything in that race, yeah, and that and that took, a, I think, a little bit, little bit of getting over. Um, obviously there was a bit of anger there, um, but it's it's a part of sliding it doors. Over time. It's just yeah, sometimes it's nice to get someone to say sorry. Yeah. Um, and that's all you're after. I'm not looking for a lawsuit or anything, but yeah, a sorry, a sorry goes a long way.
0: The the other thing I want to go on towards is where, while we talk about injuries and, and getting over that sort of injury, uh, you as I said before, you had very few soft tissue injuries. Uh, so as far as prevention, we talk about management of load. But was there was there anything else um, you did strength wise that sort of thing that you think people should incorporate into programs from up injury prevention point of view
1: yeah obviously and it's it's well known everyone should have a strength and conditioning um obviously specific to and tailored towards you and your needs and your sport what i do for triathlon or and cycling or in particular is there'll be some quite a lot of similar stuff towards running um due to the the straight line motion and similar muscle groups but you know it's completely different to what someone would do for basketball or beach volleyball or such so it's it's yes incorporating it into your program um and understanding and now working with triathlon victoria as an athlete pathway manager i'm working with a lot of juniors um it's it's getting that mindset still that strength and conditioning is not about lifting heavy weights there's still that perception out there that strength and conditioning is getting on a squat rack and loading it up and just churning out one rep maxes um, or or leg presses for all day long it's no well it's the junior athletes you know you can you can start a strength and conditioning program quite simply and easy with one body weight movement body loading lunges squats using your own body weight is is fine Um, progressing into therabands you know there i travel everywhere with a theraband because it's got that many multiple uses for swimming obviously after one of my knee surgeries i had problems with um my right side glute being activated all the time, I taught myself a new motor pattern as such, which hindered my cycling a bit. So I, I can pull out a Theraband anyway. You can put it in your pocket, travel with it. Um, but any motel room I'm in, I can do sideways crab walks and um, clam shells and things like that quite simply, which is going to aid my performance. And then I think it's just making sure you know, the small things, warm ups and cool downs. Um, I, I probably wasn't massive in doing drills and that. In the middle of um, track sessions, yeah, I'd more su- do stuff. Um, big, big believer in strides, um, even at the end of a, end of a, an easy run. Leg turnover, neural firing, strides. I'm big believer in. Um, but I, I just came back to the old Kenyan warm up. I start out at jogging at six kilometres an hour or something, and then mm-hmm. every few minutes just slowly get quicker, slowly get quicker, slowly get quicker, and then progression to the session. I guess, and it's my personal opinion too, is you know sometimes you'll look at some groups and I've been involved with some groups as well. Um, where you take the tan for instance, you do a warm up lap of the tan, um, and then or around Albert Park and we'd meet at the track and then the next thirty minutes they're talking, doing a couple of stretches, few few activation drills, whatever. And I'm like, Well, I've cooled down now. Like my muscles are gone from being warm, loose and, and limber, like, let's do do the warm up, let's do a couple of activations to us, get the strides done. But we shouldn't be standing here 30 minutes later. And then then you're about to tell me I'm going to rip into 10 quarters. Like, hang on. It's, yeah. Yeah. It's used to always amaze me, yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. The old, uh, be, be very specific to the sport that you're doing. And, uh, you know, it used to always surprise us. Uh, and I think it's a bit different events but the the distance runners would you know do exactly as you are saying, they'd go out there and they might do a four or five k run, come in, do some strides, do some specific stuff, do your session, and get out of there and and your your sprinters would still be uh stretching on the ground doing some some block starts, having a chat this sort of thing
1: yeah and and you think they're they're the ones doing highly explosive movements yeah like yeah you you'd want to stay warm and loose yeah but you'd,
0: you'd you know, think so. Uh, and what about recovery? Where does that fit into things? It, it goes a bit with the the uh, injury prevention stuff.
1: Yeah, obviously that, that was one sort of thing where we massage, you know, weekly, once or twice a week, mm-hmm. we'd always try and do um, just through sponsors and that as well over time. And, and obviously things have progressed now. It was, I used to sort of travel with a stims um, mm-hmm. thing early days. Um, now it's, you know, i progressed into I think the most well-known one or the one we've got in the cupboard here now is a Compex. Yep again is it is it amazing is a a full massage probably not but does it serve a purpose and and i always come back to is is it better than doing nothing at all and if something's better than doing nothing at all then it's it's helping in some degree whether it's two percent five percent ten percent i'd love to have a massage after at the end of it every day but obviously sometimes the pockets aren't i can't travel with a masseur although my wife is a physiotherapist it helps it does help um but you know obviously massage was one and then doing simple things like going for a walk um it's if you look at it it's nearly like a a light form of massage you're running muscles through a small range of motion at a, a very easy effort um is going for a light walk at the end of the day probably better than just slumping on a couch and tightening up i'd argue that it was too i was never a fan of ice baths i don't like the the cold coldness, I'm a warm water person, but again, my argument, and then there has been a few research studies too that sort of back it up, but the, the warm water or warm environments too, it increases blood flow. So you're getting toxins out of the muscles as well. So yes, it might increase inflammation a little bit, um, but it's, if it's not an injury, then I'd, I'd jump in a hot tub. If, if I had one available at different places, we'd stay and just sit in there for 10 minutes. Um, and I generally felt better for that too and while you're sitting in there you're just running your hands over your calves if you've had a hard day most people generally without consciously knowing it you'll run your hands over your quads up and down you run them over your calves so you're doing a light self-massage Yep. is it as good as someone that's experienced in the field no but again is something better than nothing 100
0: absolutely and and you you touch on a really good point there as far as walking i i always call I, I talk to athletes about what i call a massage run where you might just you're literally trotting or walking just be it on grass or whatever but you're just turning your legs over and as you say as far as warm down goes like you, you're increasing circulation you're, you're helping rid your body of of waste products it, it just seems a, a no-brainer that people if especially if they're you know you've done a an eight hour event or for the marathoners out there you know you've you've done your, your three, four hour marathon and you're stiff and sore and struggling to walk downstairs, surely it makes sense to go and do some really easy walk, jog, whatever it be, rather than sitting around doing nothing.
1: Yeah. And even after, you know, events it's, I think that the general population will generally take a day off after, after an event where I'll try and get athletes to go for a light ride. It may only be 30 or 40 minutes um, just to keep the legs moving. And, they may have their rest day. I'll generally put on a, a on a Tuesday, um, Tuesday or a Wednesday sort of thing. But for those next one to two days, I, I encourage athletes to move, and it'll be generally either a walk, um, preferably a cycle. Again, because and possibly on a trainer because I, I like the trainer because you can get off at any stage. Yeah. Um, so easy gear, spin the legs, no effort, and it. Again, it's about moving the muscles through range of motion, increasing blood flow. That's the purpose of it. And you know, you talk about your your runs as well. I call them um, shuffle runs. Yeah. Um, And it's that the aim is to, yes, to get two feet off the ground, but if in doubt, slow down is just generally the comment i'll always have after it as well um, love
0: it love yeah. it um I'm, I'm aware that we're running out of time and i'm only halfway through our, our questions but uh what i should touch on before we finish up technology you know well you, you me more than you probably when i started running we we had the the nylex clock of above <laughs> the uh the silos uh there and on, on um swan street uh but we you know we'd have our basic seiko watch and uh, you know, time our sessions and things. These days, we have you know power meters and everyone does heart rate zones and that sort of thing. Where do you see technology fitting in? Does it make a huge difference? And how does it how's it train change training from when you started to now?
1: Yeah, I think you know technology obviously helped things over time, and it's natural progression. Um, you can argue that actually training principles is a form of technology because we've learned these things. So the way everyone trained in the past to now, um, there's been an evolution. People are more precise about things. Um, so through technology, we're able to, whether it be testing, improve training principles. Uh, but yeah, heart rate monitors, power meters, you know, you got power meters for running now. There's so many different tools out there now. But the, the one thing I try and get athletes to always come back to is they're, they're an outcome. Um, they show you a snippet of time. Um, it's like a race result. You and I can finish in a dead heat, but the race itself will have completely different stories about the race unfold. Um, uh, We we can look down and see a heart rate or a number on a power meter, but that's just a number in that snippet of time, um, pace, you can run through a K and it might say five minutes for that K, but you can run that K 100 times. And every time you run that K in five minutes, we'll have a different scenario. Um, so it's being in tune with your body on, on how you feel and, and noting that it's these are outcomes on any given time. It's not actually telling you how you feel. Um, heart rate's telling you how many beats per minute your heart is actually pumping. Um, it's not telling you whether you've had a stressful day at work um, for meetings and you've had to do a presentation to your board or something. It's not telling you whether you're, you're a labourer and you've spent all day on your feet lifting 500 bricks. Um, it's not telling you these things where the body itself so there's there's one person that can tell everyone how they feel like someone the coach may turn up to a trap and go look you look fantastic you, you're you on tonight there, there's only one person that can tell you whether you're on tonight and that's yourself because mm-hmm. you're the only one that knows how much sleep you've had um whether you've got kids up all night crying or whether you've had 10 hours sleep um how how you fueled Throughout the day, have you eaten have you properly to get to the session at the end of the day properly? Um, how stressful your day's been? Your body itself is very good at intuition and telling you how it feels. So I highly still encourage yes, I use these tools in training and, and setting programs and obviously tracking things but RPE is still one that I try and get athletes to teach. Whether you use a scale of one to 20, one to 10, one to five, I don't care what the RPE scale is, perceived exertion, mm-hmm. but make sure you use the same one every time. Yep. And then learn to, to rate yourself and always be aware. And again, you come back to talking about earlier, how do I feel, what do I need? And RPE is just that, you're standing there and going, all right, at any time, how do I feel? All right, I feel crappy. All right, why do I feel crappy? Oh." Well, I've actually only drunk four coffees today. Um, you know, I've ran in and out of three meetings um, and the kids were up all last night. Okay, there's a reason for me to feel crappy. So, this session says it's a hard track session. So, it's hard. Hard's hard. This session, I might need to hit this. Well, today, my heart is only going to hit this number. The, the body doesn't know the number, the body just knows hard's hard. Yeah. So, as long as you tick the range that you're hitting, the numbers are relevant. And then again, you come back to as long as that is consistent over time, then the progression is going to occur and your numbers will get quicker, but it's, purely by coming back to, again, how do I feel, what do I need, and RPE.
0: Yeah, gold. Um, and that's, that's the thing that, uh, you know, listen to your body. Train as your body tells you to train. Uh, but some days you might do 40 minutes for your 10K run today and it'll be 6 out of 10 effort and you'll do 40 minutes for your run tomorrow and it'll be 4 out of 10 effort, purely based on other factors in your life. So adjust to what your body's telling you.
1: Yeah, and come back to if you if you have to do a, a twenty minute run at five minute K pace as an example, um, you're running and you're you don't have it on that day, and you're forcing your body to get through the each split and see five minutes. The highly likely scenario is again you're reaching above what you have on that day, so chances of sickness, chances of fatigue, high fatigue the next day, and the chances of injury are extremely high um, because you're forcing yourself to do something you're not capable on that day where other days as everyone knows you might go through the k in four minutes 50 and feel amazing and that's okay that's okay too um Long as you're not forcing st- it yeah yeah and and again you know the flip side is people get stuck on these numbers as well it's like i must hit five minute k's but if you're doing that all the time but one day or every other day if you feel great and you go at four minutes 50 you know there's some people out there or coaches out there who go oh you shouldn't have run that quick and i'm like but if you feel good, go with it. Like, And again, Paula Paula Newby-Fraser was big on that in races. She's like, always be aware of how you feel. If you feel good, go with it because there's a high chance in a race somewhere you're going to feel crappy and you're going to have to slow down. But if you're holding yourself back when you're feeling good, that's how records are broken.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that, it gets back to our old risk reward thing. You just got to got to react to what's in front of you, and uh, but getting more rest or, or pushing on when you when you're feeling great. Um, yeah, that's that's really good. Uh, we better we better finish up. I, I hope uh, everyone's really enjoyed that as much as I have. Uh, you're a, a wealth of knowledge, and and the big thing is keeping it simple. Um, that uh, is is what really comes out there, and if you if you just keep things pretty simple and uh, listen to your body, recover well, you'll you'll gen, generally uh, perform a bit better.
1: Yeah, and like as I said, it's it's those three rules, and you can translate to any part of life: is don't get sick, don't get injured, be consistent. Love it,
0: great great note to finish on, mate. Thanks very much for your time, and uh, we'll we'll speak again soon. Sounds good. Very very good. Thanks, mate. Well, that's it for episode 15. What an absolute amazing career, and fascinating to hear how someone at the very top of world sport has achieved what they have. And in Luke's case, overcome some massive injury hurdles and serious traumatic events along the way. For all those runners out there, I've set up a private Facebook page for many of my clients and any interested runners for that matter. I'm regularly posting up-to-date advice, education, injury, prevention hints, and a lot more. Just go to www.sspc.com.au, hit the Groups tab, look for the Educating Runners tab, and send us a request to join. But for now, that's it from us. We've got more great episodes on the agenda with guest athletes and our usual Perform, Prevent, Recover injury advice. So please don't forget to hit the follow button to ensure you get notified as soon as the next edition is released.